Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello. Barbie has grossed a billion dollars. Taylor Swift's tour looks set to make about 1.4. And Donald Trump's lawyer making the case that he was just encouraging officials in a, quote, aspirational way to overturn the 2020 election result, did a round of TV news interviews on Sunday that, I now understand, is known as doing the Ginsburg, i.e. five TV network shows all in a morning, much as Monica Lewinsky's lawyer, William Ginsburg, did when making allegations about her affair with Bill Clinton. In other words... It's the week beginning, Monday, the 7th of August. I'm James Harding. I'm joined by Jess Winch, Jeevan Vaskar and Basha Cummings. Hello to you all. Hello. Hi. From the Tortoise Newsroom in London, welcome to the news meeting. Ukrainian President Zelensky says a blood transfusion centre in the Kharkiv region was bombed. The first of the migrants due to board the Bibby Stockholm have already arrived. The government has scrapped a rule that meant prisoners who had been wrongly convicted of a crime and then cleared could be charged for food and accommodation costs incurred in jail. England are through to the quarterfinals of the Women's World Cup after beating Nigeria 4-2 on penalties. I am back from my holidays, and I'm wishing, of course, that I wasn't back from my holidays and I was still on them. <laughs> uh, a big thank you, I should say, to Liz and to Giles for editing the news meeting this past couple of weeks. Before we get into the stories of the day, can I just catch up on a set of stories of the last fortnight and, I suppose, a question? As a rule, I try to pay not very much attention to the news when I'm away. But looking at things here and there, I kept on feeling that something has shifted in the UK these past couple of weeks. Either it's that Rishi Sunak has revealed himself or that it's he's repositioned himself. I'm talking about migrants and barges, labour and criminal gangs, and most of all climate and this maxing out on North Sea oil. And he's become, at least to me, quite obviously much more of a deliberately wedge-issue politician. And it seems like this is a long way from Dishy Rishi, the eat-out-to-help-out Chancellor. It certainly feels more tactical. And so genuinely, I feel like I've got less of a grip on the question, who is Rishi Sunak? Jess, thoughts? I think we knew that he was always very much a numbers-focused technocrat who was perhaps willing to say what other people thought on cultural wedge issues. And I think with the economy and the state that it is in, I think that you're going to see more and more of these wedge issues in the build-up to the election. But what I thought was interesting is that particular, uh, in particular, his stance against, um, not stance against, but his shift on net zero, his um, North Sea oil licenses, his review of uh, low traffic neighbourhoods and things like that, that does seem to be working among Tory members. There's a very closely watched poll called Con, um, on Con Home that showed that he's now kind of middle ranking in the cabinet league table, up from about 
minus 2.7, I think, just last month. So this idea that he's taken the Uxbridge by-election as a signal that he should be a man of the motorists does seem to be playing well among the Tory voters. What do you think, Jeevan? What I feel is going on when I, look, when I look at Rishi Sunak is something that I call the Emmanuel Macron distortion field. <laughs> and that is that these are guys who look like you want to go for a jog with them on a Saturday morning, have a cappuccino with them and a croissant. They look sort of fluffy and liberal because of their style, but they're not. They're ideologues. And I think Sunak has always been an ideologue. It's been really clear what he thinks of the EU, for example. It's been really clear that he doesn't grasp net zero. That was clear from the, the BBC hustings really early on. And I think that the current situation is allowing him to reveal who he really is. So this, this, is, this is the core of the man. So my read on it, which is on climate versus cost of living, on serving the public now versus children and grandchildren, this is not a shift. This is not a limbering up for November 2024. That's exactly what I think. I think that, I, I think that he... I think he's someone who doesn't understand the future economic costs of climate, doesn't feel they're worth paying, doesn't have really have a sense of uh, climate change beyond a kind of like a narrow view of green finance, which is there's a bit of money to be made from it. Um, but yeah, when it, when it comes to sort of winning the next election, his focus is, is now on the immediate horizon. Basha, what do you think? I think we do know who Rishi Sunak is. And I think we know that from this weekend. Did you see the TikTok video? No. <laughs> So, uh, you know, he's on holiday in California. A woman um, posted that she was at a Soul Cycle spinning class and she thought that Taylor Swift might be coming because there were all these sort of security guards. <laughs> God, imagine and it was how a, disappointing. <laughs> yeah. And she was, it was a 7 a.m. class and it turns out it's not Taylor Swift. It's a Taylor Swift-themed class and Rishi Sunak is at it. And it turns out that he's a huge Taylor Swift fan. All right, let's get stuck into the stories of the day. Um, Jess, long story short, you first. Pushing the boundaries. Jeevan? Where are you really from? Where are you really from? Basha? Shit show. <laughs> Is that just a description of what we're doing <laughs> yeah. here or potentially? The world in general. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's your verdict on the show so far. <laughs> Uh, Jess, why don't you go first? Uh, my story is about the arrest of Imran Khan in Pakistan. On Saturday, uh, the former Prime Minister was arrested after a court sentenced him to three years in prison for illegally selling state gifts. And this ruling disqualifies Khan from standing in national elections, which were due to happen around November this year. He was picked up um, from his home in Lahore. He's now being held in a high-security prison. Um, he denies wrongdoing and plans to appeal the charges. Uh, and on the same day, actually, as Khan was arrested, the government signalled that actually the elections might not happen in November. They might get pushed back potentially to early next year um, to take the results of a recent census into account. Before we get into all the implications and reverberations, there's a bit about the actual case that I don't understand. Yes. He's being, quote unquote, convicted yes. for selling on goodies and prezzies that were given to him when he was in office. Yes. Right? Like a fancy watch and other things like that. Yes. The watch was given to him by the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Isn't there something called the treasure house, which is the it's, sort of state... Exactly. It's called Toshikana. And I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that, but that's the department that holds all of the goodies that are given to government officials while they are in office. So why does Khan need the money? Uh, I'm not sure that he does. <laughs> I don't I don't know. So I think you are also allowed to sort of purchase these items that were given to you as a gift. And what he, I think, is, is alleged to have done is that he then resold them for a profit and didn't it, sort of the way that the items were valued in the first place 
were perhaps wasn't perhaps done properly. That that's that's what the court case hinged on. But there are dozens and dozens and dozens of these cases against yes, him. No, there are something like 120 cases that have been filed against him. Some a lot more serious than this one, but. That this has all been happening over the past year. There's yet multiple cases that are being brought against Imran Khan in what government critics are saying is very much just an attempt to stop him from standing in elections and stop him returning to power. So why does this lead the news, Jess? Because people might well, every other week of the year, say Pakistan, Exhibit A in the lineup of failed states, the battle between the military and Imran Khan has been going on for ages. What's happened that makes you think this is a moment? I think it gives you a real sense of how vulnerable the elections are more generally. With him out of the picture, which it now and only now looks like he he probably really is, it means that Pakistanis are left to choose between the two other main parties who are both hugely unpopular. And where does that leave the sort of the, the whole system in itself? And the wider point of this weekend that I mentioned about the elections, that they might get postponed entirely, the actual government's due to be dissolved this week which means that you're going to see Pakistani handing over to an interim government for potentially a very long period of time if the elections are delayed. It's supposed to be 90 days. So you will then have no clear leader, no clear ruling party. Um, You'll have an interim government that is even more vulnerable to influence from the military. And it leaves the region very vulnerable because if Pakistan's unstable, the whole region is too. So just talk through that. What are the knock-on effects? This cycle that you mentioned that Pakistan seems to be endlessly caught in between, you know, of economic and political instability won't get solved anytime soon. And that matters because it means you will see more people vote with their feet and just leave. And we're seeing this play out because you saw 300 Pakistanis who were on board the fishing trawler that sank in the Mediterranean quite recently. It's one year, I think, this month that we saw the worst flooding in Pakistan in recent memory. And it doesn't look as though the country is going to be any more equipped to cope with those kind of disasters than it was then. Um, And last week, there was a bombing at a political rally, which left dozens dead. And that's been claimed by Islamic State. And you're seeing increasing numbers of these um, attacks uh, by militants that have been probably emboldened by the fact that you've got the Afghan Taliban in power next door. And I, again, all these things just feed into... Uh, a destabilising environment that I think has knock-on impacts for the region. Stephen, what do you think? Well, my family's Sri Lankan, so I'm I'm pretty interested in uh, dysfunctional South Asian semi-democracies. Um, but that said, I'm struggling a bit with this story for the main reason that um, I don't really have a grip on Imran Khan beyond the fact that he was a famous cricketer who became a successful politician. I don't really know what he did in Pakistan. I don't really know what the consequences for Pakistan are of him going to prison. Does this mean that, I mean, I know that Pakistan's a highly indebted and highly unstable country, but are the military good stewards of it? Was Imran Khan a transformational leader? I just don't have answers to these questions. I'd love to know more about the story, but at the moment, I don't feel convinced. Bashar, what do you think? I have a question about his party. Is he a kind of totemic leader and there is nobody else who can kind of come close to him? Is there anyone who could take his place? And to Jeevan's point, I don't really know what that mantle is. Is it a kind of more progressive politics than that Pakistan, than Pakistan is used to? Or is it it's him or nothing? I think that's a really good question. I haven't seen that there could be someone who could easily step into the to breach, to breach where he's concerned. I mean, he founded this party in, in mm. the 1990s. It's very much been built uh, around him. And if he is not there, I think he can certainly wield a lot of influence, but I'm not sure anyone can sort of step into that void. Um, There's so much more to talk about this. Um, I do think how we keep a watch on, A, stories that are 
important but not surprising, but this bigger kind of democracy dying thread. Mm. Um, something we should come back to. Jeevan, what's yours? Um, sure. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, this is a story about two Canadian men, and I'll begin by talking about one of them. His, no, his name was Richard Beauvais, who grew up understanding himself to be um, half French and half Indigenous, an ethnicity called uh, Matisse. So Beauvais's daughter wanted to know more about his indigenous roots, and he took an at-home DNA test. And I think you can guess what is coming. Um, he discovered that he didn't have any French or indigenous um, heritage. He was actually Ukrainian, Ashkenazi Jewish, and Polish. Uh, and this happened about two years ago. And around the same time, there's a man called Eddie Ambrose in another Canadian province who grew up going to a Ukrainian church, eating pierogies, thinking himself Ukrainian. He takes a DNA test and discovers that he's French and indigenous. So the two men make contact, apparently through this DNA testing website, and discover that they conclude that they've probably been switched at birth. They were both born in the same rural, rural Canadian hospital, and the parents were sent home with the wrong baby. Just a mistake. Just a mistake. But this is the moment when, this, when the story gets dark. So Ambrose, who was brought up in the Ukrainian family, has a very, very happy childhood, has a sort of blessed life. Um, Beauvais, who grew up in originally in, in, in a Matisse community, is taken away from his parents and given up for adoption. And this, at the time, was official Canadian policy, taking Indigenous children away from their families and giving them to white families for adoption. So he, he's a victim of sort of horrifying racism, despite the fact that he is actually white. So the reason this story excites me is that it's, it's a story about the intersection of technology and identity. Obviously, we've you know, these kinds of mix-ups have happened for a long time. These kinds of strange kind of family connections, discoveries about race have happened for a long time. The technology is accelerating the pace at which they happen. And I'll just put in a footnote here, which is that um, the genetic testing is also happening amongst white nationalists. So uh, if you go onto fascist websites, they're, they're, they're sort of popping up and saying, I'm 10% I'm black. Am I still allowed to be fascist? And they're saying, no, no, no you've got to be kicked off. Uh, no, so there's this really. bizarre kind of conversation going on amongst, amongst extremists. But I think the thing that for me is really interesting uh, and maybe a little hopeful is that we often think of the tech as something that sort of reinforces prejudices. We worry about the AI being racist. But I actually think this is a story of tech kind of overcoming or undermining racism because what it's telling us is that what really matters to us isn't what's in our genes, isn't what we think is fixed. What really matters is things like eating pierogies or going to church or speaking a language, all of which are basically artificial and anyone can learn. Your identity is something you can sort of take on and put off. And the, the sort of the way that one of the things that I read from Richard Beauvais, he talked about this, and he said, in my mind, I will always be native Canadian. And maybe that's the only place where it matters. You know, maybe genes matter for other things, diseases, longevity, whatever. But who you are, that's who you think you are. Basha, what did you think of this? I think it's extraordinary. How, can I just ask, how did they find each other? So this is the part of the story I find a bit shady, <laughs> I have to admit. Apparently, they found each other through the DNA testing website. But I don't really understand how, how that happens. I don't think it's normal for websites like this to have a mechanism, message boards. I just don't know. I'd like to know more about that. So, so this, is a, this is a story by Nomritsu Onishi, the New York Times correspondent. And I, mean, I should just say I'm a massive fan of his. Did you ever read that story about lonely deaths in Japan that mm -hmm. he wrote? He's just one of those amazing writers that write stories about lives rather than, uh, if you like, the news. I think that when you start 
um, piecing your identity together, these websites do put you in touch with people who essentially say, look, I'm willing to be contacted by people with similar DNA. Because one of the elements in this story is that Ambrose has got in touch with someone who biologically is his sister who happens to live nearby. So the it's clear that the network in some way or other works. Did, did, you, re- did you read it, Yes, Jess? I did. Well, it's just the hospitals that don't work in this story. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into that they in a minute. Have, yeah, they, they, they said the records were lost, right? The there's there's no lost. way of ever yeah. really knowing for sure what happened that mm. day. Jess, what did you Which, think of it? This is a, I read this story when it came out last week before I knew that Jeevan was, was planning to pitch it. And I'm really glad he picked it. It's one of those stories that does stay with you. It's got a lot of power to it. It's the kind of story you want to tell people about at the end of the day. Like, did you hear that this happened? You spent your whole life believing one thing and it's a lie. I, I sort of struggle to see the, the bigger implications for leading the news, sort of the, the, the wider. I think Jeevan's done a good job of pulling this idea of tech and identity together. But I think that's an amazing story to tell. I guess there are a few things in this that I wanted to just go through, Jeevan. There's a really, really upsetting element in the story, which is, I think it's Richard Beauvais, I I may have got this wrong, saying, actually, if I had the choice, I'd rather not know. And so the responsibility of those people who are, quote, unquote, the purveyors of the truth in this, I don't know what that is, what the psychological impact of that is, if that has repercussions within his family, where does the responsibility for that that sit? So there's a truth question. I do think there's a really big question, which you can see the hospital dancing around, which is, okay, well, now you have uncovered the truth. Do we compensate? What do we apologize? At the moment, what they say is we can't find the paperwork. But there's a much bigger responsibility question. And I thought that your point about identity, I read it totally differently, funnily enough. I read it as a story about the way in which we perceive people as what we're told they are, right, rather than who they feel they are. If you look at all of the Canadian government's historic treatment of the Metis people, you know, that was what they were told this person was, and they treated him accordingly. I, it was a kind of curious circumstantial racism rather than evidenced by anything. So I think there are two different things here, James, on that last point. One of them is that the way individuals think about themselves is obviously conditioned by the kind of the surroundings and you know their family and how they're brought up. But the way that society operates on people is conditioned by these kind of mad ideas of race. And, you know, Canada's policy of separating uh, indigenous kids, which I think uh, something similar also happened in Australia. So it kind of tells us that, that societies built on racial divisions are, are themselves kind of that's that's a bit of a bonkers way to build a society. So that, that I think is an interesting part of this. But I suppose I suppose we're saying maybe similar things, which is the depth of identity mm. and the thinness of racism. Yeah, it's a, it's really revealed in all of this. What I can't understand is if you step back and you say, okay, let's say we as a newsroom went out to go and investigate this hospital. And as a result of which, we then went to go and identify these two individuals. We then made public their identities, this original mistake. We would at least as a newsroom stop and think, well, what are the responsibilities we have when we bring that into the public domain? And we probably have responsibilities even in the process of contacting them because there are identity issues and privacy issues involved. What's not clear to me is what the world of 23andMe DNA testing sees as their responsibilities, because in this one story alone, you've just seen a massive world of reverberation. 
that's a really interesting question. Yeah, but what, also, we don't know what they do with those giant databases full of, yeah. you know, mm. and, and the ways in which that then intersects with criminal justice, with the state. I mean, that's going to be a huge question and it comes back to the responsibility. It's a whole different yeah. version of who's who, isn't it? Um, l- let's take a break and then we're going to come to Basha's story. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Basher, <laughs> let's swim in that particular pond. Okay. So imagine, James, that you're an athlete. (laughs) That's all I can do. (laughs) (laughs) And um, you're into triathlon. I know you like cycling, but you add to that um, open water swimming and running. Um, And you make it to the World Triathlon Series. So you might be an amateur. (laughs) And uh, you make it to this rolling series throughout the year. Uh, It happens in this, this year. It's been in Yokohama, Abu Dhabi, Hamburg, Montreal, and then it came to Sunderland. And it makes sense that it came to Sunderland because there is a beach in Sunderland called Roka Beach, uh, which is very highly regarded as a very clean environmental beach. It has a blue flag award from uh, one of the leading environmental charities. Uh, it's it's um, got very high water quality. And so 2,000 people in this triathlon come to this beach at the end of July um, for a festival of sport. And it's the best triathletes from around the world. And it's taking place within the qualification window for the Paris Olympics. So it's a, it's a big deal. And then, James, in your athletic... Uh, Gob. Yes. <laughs> in your um, Lycra tri-suit, you start vomiting and you get terrible diarrhea. And it turns out that you are one of 57 athletes who have become seriously sick after competing in this water uh, off Roca Beach. Until now, I've always admired your ability to paint a picture with words. Yes, it's all getting a bit vivid, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome back, James. Um, and so it turns out that actually the water is not great. Um, the Environment Agency had been sampling the water just three days before this triathlon event was due to take place, and they found more than 39 times higher the typical reading of E. coli, which is the thing that will make you sick if you swallow it in the water. Um And so if you swim a little deeper into this story, you realize that actually this piece of coastline is part of this raging debate about sewage discharge into the 
into the sea. And one triathlete from Australia posted on his Instagram that he had been really unwell after the event and he said that he'd been feeling pretty rubbish. But I guess that's what happens when you swim in shit. The swim should have been cancelled. And so now there's this, it sort of kick-started this debate about I guess on a smaller level, should the should the water testing have revealed that this was these were unsafe levels of E. coli, and it should have been moved? But it speaks to this much bigger, I think, argument, which is uh, Britain's ailing water system, privatisation, the fact that the Environment Agency says that last year, twenty twenty two, there were eight hundred and twenty five sewage spills every day, every single day. In the sea or the rivers? All, everything, um, and that totals. 1.75 million hours of sewage spillage. Um, and is this worse in the UK than in other countries? Well, the European Environment Agency has ranked UK bathing waters the worst on the continent. Why? Because we're pumping shit into them. <laughs> and who up in Sunderland is doing that? Well, uh, Northumbrian Water, which uh, runs water in that region, says that it hadn't recorded any discharges that might have record, uh, might have affected the water quality around that time. So they're saying it's not their responsibility. I mean, there's a debate about when the testing was done. Was the testing done in that particular piece of water? I think the the bigger point is is that we are contaminating. We are an island, and we are contaminating our rivers and our seas to a point where it's not safe to swim or get in the water. So if you take fifty seven triathletes as an example of how bad the water pollution problem is in the UK. Mm -hmm. What do you do about it? Well, uh, there was a really interesting article in the FT that was looking at this. And there was a quote from Philip Stevens, which I think is worth reading. Uh, he says, Blinkered devotion to the market has been the lodestar of the nation's policymakers. The costs are being counted in the raw sewage dumped daily into its rivers and coastal waters. So his point is, and because this has kickstarted a question about renationalization of the water companies, and we know from discussing Thames Water a few weeks ago that the ways in which these companies have been structured is is problematic that paying out huge amounts to shareholders when it's actually the people who are paying the bills that are going to have to foot this 10 billion project to try and update sewage systems and Victorian waterways and all the rest. So I think there's a big question about whether privatisation of, of a national water system works, but equally, can we leave it to the companies to fix? That's a bigger question. Jess, what do you think? I feel a bit queasy. <laughs> the, the as you say, I think the I'm not quite clear how who knew what when and why this race did go ahead. If this reading showed this level of E. coli, but on the the bigger picture of just the state of Britain's waterways, I think the a big question going forward has to be on not just who's who's responsible, but who's responsible for holding them to account to actually improve this. Like, what are the targets? What's the what are the goals here to actually bring down these kind of levels of unsafe, that unsafe is a, water? That is a really good point because um, recently in a, in a bid to try and tackle this problem, the Environment Agency was allowed by the government to now impose unlimited fines on water companies who were breaking the rules around sewage um, because currently the the penalty is capped at 250 grand. But then one of its executives went on the radio and was being questioned about, okay, so what might you fine a company if they pump a load of sewage into the sea or into rivers? And he w couldn't give an answer or wouldn't give an answer. And so I think there's a, I think it's Ofwat is the uh, regulatory body that, you know, 
is meant to look after our water. Um, and there's a big question about whether they are just a completely sort of toothless mm. organisation that are, have basically been captured by the industry and will be able to make nothing Dream work. On. I think um, it's really interesting with environmental stories because often they, they sort of simmer away or something's kind of wrong or broken for a long time. And it takes something that's sort of unsettling or disgusting or shocking for it to sort of break into the mainstream. Uh, and this happened in the US years ago when a river caught fire and led to this Clean, Clean Water Act famous incident. I think this is a really great subject for a newsroom. I think, you know, I agree with Jess. There's there's an investigation to be done, you know, who's responsible? How are they to be held accountable? There are so many questions this raises. And it, I think it kind of manifests the subject in a really neat way. It's not simply a question of renationalisation or, you know, free market, you know, mm. let the enterprise rip. It seems to me that say day-to-day failure of government now in the operation of that regulation, in the operation of that oversight. They could very well say, look, we've got, we've got a massive sewage problem in our waterways and in our seas. You have to do something as part of your license to operate. They have that power. And I just don't see that connection being, no. being made, and at actually, least not yet. If you look at the figures, so, so the government's newest plan is that it will cost $10 billion to update the water system to try and prevent uh, these sewage spillages. Um, but if you look at the way in which these companies are, are structured, the payouts to shareholders of water companies have totaled $74 billion. So and, and the cost of that $10 billion plan to to try and save our water is going to be mostly shouldered by the people who pay the bills. So you can see that there's a big problem with how these, how this is all being set up and that would seem like an obvious place to start. All right. Story that should lead in news. Stephen, what's yours for the week? Um, I'm, I'm quite divided. And I think that this, what I'm going to say is probably going to reflect my ignorance of Pakistan, but I'm going to go for the, uh, the vomiting triathletes. Jess? I think I will go for the vomiting triathletes as well. I'm going to go for the DNA swapped at birth story because I think you're right that it's the sort of it's it's the collision of tech and identity which we don't yet know how it's going to reshape how we think about ourselves and each other and I liked how you framed it I've let Pakistan down well, actually I'm much more torn Jess I think by street, the most important story that we've talked about is Pakistan, and particularly how Pakistan then links to all of these crises. You use this phrase, semi-democracies, pseudo-democracies, former democracies, what's going on in Niger, what's going on across these, you know, incredibly unstable uh, African states. And part of me is enormously pulled by that because I think that we keep underestimating the hangover of the pandemic, the impact of the Ukraine war on food prices, the uh, consequences overall of interest rates and debt, and just the cycle of destabilization. So it feels to me as though that is a theme of the year, a theme of the last few years that we keep on nearly reporting and not quite. So I'm enormously drawn by that. That said, I have to confess that there are certain moments where the news can do more than inform and it just illuminates. And I feel as though the story about the two babies accidentally switched at birth who then, to some extent, discover themselves, but to another extent don't in the process of understanding their DNA is such a profound story about who we are individually, how society reads ourselves, the 
intersection between, as you say, technology, identity, and I think still to come responsibility, that I think that New York Times story, that Nomritsu Onishi story, is the one that we'll be talking about for weeks and months to come. And it's the story that forces us or should force us as the tortoise newsroom to think, all right, how do we get into the world of 23andMe DNA testing? How do we begin to understand the different implications that's had? So my running order would be, I would go with the Canadian babies, or now 67-year-olds who discovered what happened to them as babies. I do Pakistan and the destabilization of democracy. And actually, the reason that I wouldn't choose the uh, triathletes is that obviously it's a horrific story vividly uh, um, um, and fragrantly told, Basha. <laughs> but my feeling about it is that it actually doesn't tell us something very much more than we already know. You know, Fergal Sharkey and all the campaigners mm -hmm. on water pollution have been telling us that. To my mind, the real story in this is what did the environmental agency do in terms of providing that information to the people holding the um, uh, event in Sunderland, and more importantly, what's the relationship between them, Northumbrian Water, other water agent companies, and the government itself? So it feels as though that's the intro to the story. The story is about much more than that. And we are, of course, at the start of the week. Uh, there is going to be much, much more that happens. Uh, join us at the end as we try and make sense of what should lead the news then. And if you think that we've missed an important story, then please do get in touch to tell us what you think should lead the news. It's been so thought-provoking for us to hear people come on and say, no, you've missed it or you've misjudged it. So please do email whatever you like, whenever you like, Get in touch with us at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. That's newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And we'll include your thoughts, suggestions, even reprimands uh, in the next episode. In the great history of consistency and news judgment, we are, of course, leading the tortoise newsroom next week on an investigation into how do you save a river? Have you followed our, that Save the River Brent project. So we're investigating how you can turn around the pollution of a London river. Um, we're going to leave Sting and Greta to save the Amazon. We're going to try and help a small band of people who are saving the River Brent. Jess, Stephen and Basha, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Most importantly, thank you for listening. We're going to be back on Friday. Have a very good week. Tortoise. 